starting in verse 2. Can you continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving? At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. The word of the Lord. Shall we pray? Gracious Heavenly Father, you are a sovereign God, maker of heaven and earth. There is not an inch of creation that you do not cry out mine. And all creation stands in silence before you. Father, you are a good God. You are working and moving in this world in accomplishing your purposes and providing the means to your will. And Father, you are a loving God. But Father, we confess that often when we are in the fog, when we are in the valley, when we cannot see with our eyes or touch with our hands or understand with our minds, we grow confused and frustrated and anxious. Father, though we may not see the sun, we know it is always there, though obscured by the clouds. Father, we confess that you are a good God and you are a sovereign God and you have faithfully provided for your people in the past and you have faithfully provided for us and you will provide in the future. You are not capricious, you are not arbitrary, you are not moody, you are a faithful God who sovereign love is mooding and guiding. You do not give up, you do not quit, you do not, fin not finish the job, but you are working all things according to the purposes of your will. You are working all things for good, though we understand that all, not all things are good, you can redeem it for your glory. Though we pass through the fire, though the foundations shake, we know our God is sovereign and he is good and he is loving and he is strong and we can cling to the rock who is holding us. Father, we come and we bring to you the request. We pray for our government. We pray for our government employees that you would provide for their needs. These some 800,000 uh, that did not receive a paycheck this week but are faithfully working, I pray that you would bring our leaders to uh, resolution. Father, that you would work and provide in this last week and however long this lasts to provide for your people that we would realize as a nation that our hope is not in government for government fails us every time. Our allegiance and our hope and our steadfast promises are in our citizenship which is in heaven and it will not be moved, it will not be shut down, it will not default for his promises are good and those promises are true. And we put our trust and we thank you for that. Father, 
As we open up your word, I pray that you would quiet our hearts, that you would focus our minds, and that your spirit would move, that we would be more like Jesus. And because of that, because of the satisfaction that we have found in the bread of life and the water of life, that we will go forth as beggars who have found bread and tell our brothers and sisters, our friends and neighbors who are looking for bread where to find it, and it's in you, Father. Give us a desire, give us a passion, cure us of our lethargy and, and uh, our apathy, that we would have a passion to make you known and to know you, Father. We come before your throne not by our basis of our goodness or our merit or our potential, but because Jesus Christ has opened a new and living way to the Father who says, come and cast your cares on me for I care for you. In the name that is above all names, Jesus Christ, we pray. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. We turn our attention this morning uh, to uh, Colossians, and as we uh, begin or continue in the final chapter, um, Paul directs our attention now from the roles within the home to uh, the prayers that we pray for ourselves and for the work of the gospel, and now he turns our attention to evangelism. And often when you hear the word evangelism, that can be really scary. And in fact, evangelism can be a bit painful. Rico Tice, in his book, Honest Evangelism, says that one of the greatest hindrances to evangelism is pain. He says this, many people don't like the gospel, and this is not Christians but the world, many people don't like the gospel. Sometimes they express it politely and sometimes not politely at all. They don't like it. And so they're going to, so if you're going to talk to people about Jesus, you're going to get hurt. And if I were to ask for a show of hands, how many people have been hurt or experienced pain like Rico Tice is talking about, um, probably a majority of us who have ever shared our faith or shared about Christ or even simply talked about Christ have received the uh, pushback from people who don't like the gospel. Maybe it's just rejection that you have said. They had said, no, I don't want to talk about it. And they shut you down. Maybe it's you at work, talk about it, and, and somebody will say you're the dull religious guy that everybody now holds at arm's length because they can't have a good time when you're around. Or you're openly mocked and scorned for believing such silly nonsense that the Bible has. Evangelism, sometimes when we share our faith, and we know this when our family comes over to the house, um, can often be strange or severed relationships with people that we care about. And so what Rico says is this, he says, we're wired naturally to assume that if we're getting hit, not metaphorically, or metaphorically speaking, not literally, sometimes, something's gone wrong. 
And so whenever I tell someone the gospel message and get hit, there's a temptation either to stop saying anything or to change what I'm saying. Well, I didn't really mean Jesus is the only way, but Jesus is the best way. And we, or something like that, we begin to capitulate it. Why? Because we don't like that feeling of being rejected. Some of you are like, yeah, bring it on. Uh, I like to fight. Uh, but some of us, and I'm one of them as an only child, only, um, only grandson and only nephew, I'm the special jewel of the family and I want everybody to like me. And so when people said, don't stop talking about Jesus, I don't like the gospel, that makes me feel bad because I want people to like me. And so that's what naturally happens. Um, but what happens if we stop when things get painful sharing Christ we will never discover the hunger for the gospel. And Rico Tice explains this in the culture that we live in, a culture that rejects uh, truth statements and despises moral absolute. Even in the midst of that context and culture, there is a hunger. There is a hunger for the truth of the gospel that exists, and they don't even know it. They desire for the answers that the, 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 the gospel provides, even though they don't know the questions. If we stop sharing the gospel, Ocean Park, the hunger that the world and the lost have for the gospel will never be satisfied. So what do we do? What do we do, this pain versus hunger that we do? And I believe Colossians points us to that. How do we bring the gospel to our friends and our neighbors and who don't know and love the gospel? Before we can get to any uh, method or any pitch of the gospel, evangelism starts with a witness. Evangelism starts with a gospel witness. Before you can walk the Romans road, before you can share God's wonderful plan for their life, before you can say our four words, God, man, Jesus responds, before you get to any method and form of evangelism, we must live distinctively in a world that doesn't like the gospel. And so Paul this morning gets, gives us our big idea. Those who love the gospel reflect the gospel. Those who love the gospel reflect the gospel. And how do we do that? How do we reflect the gospel? It's very simply living the gospel and speaking the gospel. Living the gospel and speaking the gospel is how we reflect the gospel as people who love the gospel. I want you to notice, turn back to Colossians chapter 1, flip maybe a page or two back. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 9 and 10. Um, Paul has a prayer that he has for the Colossian believers, that this prayer that he wants, to, um, wants them to grow towards. And notice Colossians chapter 1, verse 9. And so, from the day we heard, and day we heard of your faith and your hope and your love, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. And what is the prayer that they asked? Asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. How we are to live in our lives, to use our minds and our bodies and our, and our hearts for the gospel. That you would be filled with his will and then by doing that it would bear fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. 
If you are united to Christ by faith and you're following Jesus and you say, I belong to Jesus, he's my only hope in life and death, you have been called to conduct yourselves in such a way that you bring honor and glory to Christ with every thought and every word and every deed. The foundation of evangelism, before we ever utter a word, is a gospel faithful witness. But how do we do that? How do we reflect the good news in a faithful gospel? It starts by living the gospel in verse 5. Notice what Paul says. He says, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of time. Evangelism, it happens when we have structured time at the street corner. I remember David Whittle would go down to the street corner and he would sit there and hold a sign and pray that someone would come and talk to him and ask him about his sign. But not just sitting by the street corner, but also in the park when you're watching your kids play or your grandkids play and you start shooting the breeze with the other parents and you start to talk. Evangelism happens at football practice and it also happens at the coffee shop when you overhear conversations or you're talking about the events of the day. Gospel conversations happen everywhere, but if you're not living the gospel, no one will give you an opportunity to have a gospel conversation. Did you hear me? You can have gospel conversations, but you'll never get to those conversations if you're not living the gospel out in your life. Therefore, we're called to live with wisdom. Live the gospel by living with wisdom and living with intentionality. Living the gospel with wisdom and intentionality. Paul tells us that we're called to walk in wisdom towards outsiders. And when he says outsiders, he's not talking about that movie with Patrick Swayze and all those famous people. Um, But he's talking about those who are not in the community of faith. Those who have not been joined together with Christ. And what he's writing, and Paul is writing to a minority people that are surrounded by people who don't share their love for the gospel. Just like in our day and age, people don't like the gospel and as Christians we are a minority and it's becoming more and more with each day and every season that pass and as a prophetic minority we need wisdom how to conduct ourselves when we interact with people outside our Christian community Places as the Colossians in the market, at work, in civic functions, they had to con- uh, conduct themselves uh, with according to their convictions and not be cowardice about living out the gospel and making uh, a, a following Jesus, even though that might bring them in opposition with those people that are around them. So what Paul does is he echoes the words of Jesus himself and he says all those who belong to the community of believers who belong to Jesus are like a city on a hill or like a light in the darkness. From the Sermon on the Mount and from uh, we read also in our uh, responsive reading, Jesus says you are a light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people put a light under a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to the whole house. 
In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We have been commissioned, those of you who are a part of Christ, we have been commissioned to bring the gospel to live in such a way that we are a light in a world that doesn't like the gospel. So we don't have the choice to withdraw from society and to isolate ourselves and and form exclusive cliques that uh, uh, purposely avoid outsiders. And that's just not an option for those who love the gospel. We need to have wisdom, though, as we interact with the world and the society around us. We need to consider our actions what we do and how we do it, how we work, how we um, raise our children, how we invest our money, how we invest our time, and to be able to be faithful witnesses and have wisdom with our non-Christian friends and family and neighbors. We need wisdom, we need tact, we need thoughtfulness to reflect the gospel in our ordinary interactions outside our gospel community. We need to live with wisdom. But we also need to live intentionally. Paul continues at the end of verse 5, making the best use of time. Reflecting the gospel is not just in our reactions. Or as often too, we knee-jerk react to things. Get all excited about something without knowing all the facts and then blow our witness but it's not only in our reactions, but that we're also proactive in our witness and how we will live faithfully and live out the gospel in our lives. Paul tells these Colossians to make the best use of your time. The literal um, way this word is translated is redeem the time. Two verses earlier, um, as we looked a few weeks ago, Paul asks the believers in Colossians to pray for him and for his fellow ministers of the gospel. Pray that doors would be open. Pray that opportunities would veil themselves where Paul could share the gospel. And now he turns our attention and he says, you need to do the same thing. In your prayers, you're not just praying for Aunt Myrtle's uh, uh, tendinitis or this or that. You're praying that God's name would be hallowed, be reverenced uh, on earth as it is in heaven. And you want to go make Christ known and you want to be intentional in how you do that. So you pray, Lord. I want to live in such a way that when opportunities present themselves to me, I want to be able to have the ability to speak truth and point to the gospel in these situations. Jesus has promised that his return is imminent. And we shouldn't waste our time and dawdle our time and, 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 and um, dink around, as my family says, with our time that we have on earth as we wait for our master to come back. But we need to redeem the time, invest this time and use it to make him known and to make disciples and to share the good news of great joy. And we do that with our words, but we also do that intentionally, that the words that we use, that we show everyone honor and that uh, respect and compassion, because we never know when the opportunity to share the good news of Jesus Christ will present itself. 
We can um, puff our chests up and walk around with pride that I believe in Jesus and I know Jesus and I'm going to heaven and you're not. And we can use the gospel as a club. And that's a terrible witness. And actually it's quite hypocritical to do so. We don't antagonize or demonize unbelievers, but we think in, in, but, uh, because, of they, that they, because they think and feel differently than ours. We don't squander chances to speak of Christ by fear and slothfulness and selfish agendas. We always are praying and pursuing opportunities to share the gospel with someone because we don't know uh, when those will happen. How many times have you been walking down the street and somebody has walked up to you and said, can you explain to me what it means to be saved? It's never happened to me. It's usually uh, in conversations that we're talking and it's me injecting the gospel into a conversation and saying, you know, this world is a crazy, scary place. I am sure God, glad that I serve a good and sovereign God. And you pray it's either going to blow up right there or you're going to walk through that door and point them to Jesus the best you can. But we pray for opportunities that way and we live in our lives in such a way that we could be able to do that. Evangelism rarely happens on accident. It requires purpose. It requires attention. It requires actions. Walking up to a stranger and saying God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life can often feel like you just dropped the transmission and and it's awkward and you feel like you're selling Amway and sometimes we can do it and some people love it they they just get juiced up about it I have friends they they want to evangelize and they want to do that but there are some people like that's really that's really hard for me and I really have to work work to do that it often is far more natural to introverts and to extroverts in the course of a conversation with a friend, with a coworker, or with a neighbor that you know and that you've built a relationship and a rapport with to be able to say, I'm glad I'm trusted in Jesus. I'm glad my heavenly father takes care of me. I'm glad that Jesus died for me. And you pray that the door opens to share the gospel. And when it does Run through it and swing for the fences. Ocean Park, if we don't live intentional lives, seeking to share the gospel with those and pray, Lord, give me opportunities, and we're not looking for those, uh, those times, we will waste our time with um, idle chatter about fleeting things like the weather and the politics and sports. There is a hunger, and our neighbors have a hunger for the gospel, but we're too oblivious with, and preoccupied with our own things and our own desires than to be able to share the bread of life with them. May we be intentional to, in thought and in word and in deed, seeking opportunities to share Christ. As I, whenever I study these verses, I, you know, one... You know, I walk through my, one, what is it saying? Who is it saying it to? What's the context? How does that, then, that heart of that translate to today's? And then how does illustrations and applications in today's day and age? And I'm, as I'm thinking in, throughout the week, uh, I come home, Denise sits down and tells me about an assignment that Anna has. She does dual enrollment at the local, at FSCJ, and um, she's in an English comp class, and 
Uh, she says, well, I got an email from another parent, and in a few weeks, they're going to be showing a horror movie in class. And I'm like, okay. You know, some crazy dude chasing around some teenagers who are screaming and all that stuff. And I don't like it, but okay. We're, it, this, is, this is not a Christian school, but okay. Well, we pull up the uh, trailer and then the movie reviews, and it is a provocative and obscene plot line that's full of nudity and immorality and the exploitation of women. Um, and honestly, things I can't talk about with little ears in here. And so um, the movie honestly goes against everything that we stand for. Uh, we don't want our daughter watching that. And when um, it's 30% of her grade, we prevent this to Anna and say, this is what's going, what, what, you know, go read the movie reviews. And she comes back and she says, I, I can't watch this. It really would go against my conscience. And so what I want to do as her daddy and as a pastor, I want to get my, my, you know, my righteous guns of anger and just go blaze things down at the local uh, community college and, you know, a righteous war that I, I declare this holy jihad for Jesus. And, but then I realize, walk in wisdom with outsiders. Redeem the time. So after I cooled my jets and talked to Denise and her wisdom and, and talking with Anna, we recognized the fact that her professor is the authority in the classroom. And so she honors him in the fact that she went to him directly and said, listen, professor so-and-so, um, love your class. I've learned a lot. I'm a better writer because of it. But I re re reading the syllabus, I saw this particular movie watching it would really violate my conscience. Is there another thing, another way that I can fulfill, another, maybe another movie I can watch that we can filter on our little filtering program or something that, uh, to be able to fulfill this assignment? And I pray, and I thank you for any accommodations we have. The reason we do that is not because we're not right and she's not going to watch the movie, but I, last semester she wrote a long paper that she was a follower of Jesus and that she had received in, in the mercy and grace of Christ, and she trusts the grace and mercy of Christ. Why are we not extending grace and mercy to her professor, who is lost? And I want an opportunity that, because of the way Anna conducts herself in the class, in her emails, and how I don't go with my righteous guns a-blazing onto campus, to be able, an opportunity for her to be a light in a dark world that doesn't like the gospel. Now, it may be painful. We haven't got a response yet, and I pray that it's not. But I pray that as we walk in wisdom and praying for an opportunity to redeem this time, that we would be a powerful witness that maybe to a classmate or to another Christian in the class to be faithful witnesses for the gospel and how we live and how we work and that Christ would be honored in our responses. Because it would be very easy to go like Fox News, CNN, MSNBC, and we're all screaming at each other and you're all, you know, all going to turn or burn and all this stuff. It'd be very easy to do that kind of thing, but I want an opportunity for my daughter to be a light and she wants the same thing for the gospel because how we live out the gospel and how we extend the grace uh, that we have received is so important to our witness of Jesus Christ and I want you as people to continually pray for wisdom to determine what the best way is to implement our worldview 
Because notice, it doesn't, walk in wisdom, it doesn't give us 10 easy steps to walk in wisdom. It says walk in wisdom, live the gospel out. In every situation, we have to be wise and we have to be prudent and we have to be gracious as we live this out. But we want wisdom as we do that. Because not every situation is the same. But we, every situation needs the gospel and it needs wisdom as we conduct ourselves. Because our conduct will either undergird or undermine our attempts at sharing the gospel. If I'm obnoxious, nobody wants to hear me talk about Jesus. Because people will say, if Jesus made you like that, I want nothing to do with it. So I ask you this morning, Ocean Park, are you living out the gospel are you sharing your life with outsiders? It's, are you building intentional relationships with your neighbors, your coworkers, and those who you regularly interact with, with a hope that one day you would be able to share the gospel? Or do you, advo- or do you avoid those people? See, when we add those people in there, that's not ex- Extending the grace of God that you have received. God didn't look at you and say, I'm not dying for those people. Why do we not extend the grace of God and try to work and walk in wisdom to be able to share the gospel? For us to avoid outsiders because they're sinful is like a physician avoiding those who are sick. We know where to find the bread of life and that will, that will satisfy the spiritual hunger that the world doesn't even know they have. Why would we hide it? Are we sharing our life with outsiders? But also, how well does your life promote the gospel? If your life was a documentary and people watched you and you had a camera going around like uh, the office or something like this and, and, and to see your interactions with people, do your words and conducts honor Christ or do they shame Christ? Are your reactions to people filled with grace or anger, with pride or humility? Do you look at the world and those people uh, with contempt? Or do you look at the world through the eyes of Jesus who looked at the crowds and saw that they were like sheep without a shepherd? Do you have compassion for your neighbor who doesn't know the gospel? Are you seeking to be a peacemaker or a troublemaker? Do you antagonize your lost neighbor or do you aid him with the gospel? Because Ocean Park, we must remember that living for the gospel, those who love the gospel reflect the gospel by living out the gospel in their everyday life. Not only do we live, uh, are we living the gospel, reflecting the, the gospel, but we're also speaking the gospel in our ordinary conversations, in our gospel conversations. Notice Paul in verse 6, he says this, Let your speech be always gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer one another. Having gospel conversations matter. We need to share Jesus. Find something you're comfortable with and prepare. Study, because you have a pop quiz of evangelism and you don't know when it's coming. I sometimes encourage people um, to, in their Bible, in one of the blank pages up front, write a few verses. God, man, Jesus, respond. Write the Romans road. Write something else. Find verses where you can open up and say, see, this is what it says. Find ways to do that because if you do not prepare and live intentionally, you will come and it will be like 
deer in headlights, and you'll forget where to find John 3.16. Gospel conversations matter. We need to know the gospel, yet almost as vitally important is reflecting the gospel in your ordinary conversations. Paul does not um, allow, does not teach that the Colossians should be fearful or threatened or isolated from the outside church. He desires that their ordinary conversations lead to gospel conversations. Therefore, what he does is he gives three characteristics, three characteristics of gospel speech. One, that gospel speech should be speak with grace, speak with distinction. And speak with conviction. Notice uh, the first mark is to speak with grace. The words of a Christian must be characterized by grace. When we trust the gospel, when the gospel tells us what we deserve and what Christ has done for us, it should eradicate pride. When we realize what Christ has done, oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus not receiving the judgment we would deserve, but receiving the grace of Christ. A heart that loves the gospel cannot form any, uh, cannot embrace any form of arrogance, but treat everyone with grace that you have received yourself from the Heavenly Father. But what happens is in the heat of the moment, in the hustle and bustle of life, we forget the grace of God. And we, and we live lives that often contradict that. You see, some of you will leave here and go have a meal. And maybe the waitress will mess up your order or the cook doesn't get it right or the waiter spills your drink on you and you will chew them out. You're going to give them what they deserve and you're going to stiff them on the tip because they don't deserve any money. It's funny because you didn't deserve for Christ to die for you, yet he laid his life down for you. Yet you can't give grace to the waitress. We cuss out the fellow drivers and we discipline our children with a heavy hand, though our heavenly father is gentle and kind and compassionate to us. We badmouth our co-workers. We belittle stupid people, sometimes naming who the stupid people we, we think they are, and we talk down to our spouses or about our spouses. Mark, if you want to be a faithful witness of the gospel, our ordinary conversations must communicate the gospel. How we speak reflects or contradicts what we believe and what we, um, what we claim. Notice just a few verses later, or earlier in Colossians chapter 3, verse 8 and 9. But now... Because you have put to death what is earthly in you and you've put on Christ, you've been redeemed by him, you've received his grace and mercy, but now what, what must we do? What must we put away? Wrath or anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. The opposite of grace is 3, 8, and 9. Wrath and malice and slander and obscenities um, and, and you fill your ordinary conversations with that. And then you want to say to people, have a gospel conversations and say, repent of your sin and trust the gospel. Well, your ordinary conversations and your ordinary speech contradicts the very thing that you are claiming. You cannot pour verbal wrath out like a tyrant in one breath and the other say, breath say, Jesus loves you. 
You cannot sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, and then pour out your wrath on your neighbor because they deserve it. Yet it happens all the time. And we are so soon to forget. The people who preach and sing and pray about God's grace are often the most ungracious towards others. They declare war on their neighbor and wonder why their neighbor won't listen to the four spiritual laws. Ocean Park, if we have tasted of the sweetness of God's grace, your speech must reflect that grace. May our speech be so filled with grace that when our neighbor doesn't like the gospel and has anxiety about us and misgivings on us and just doesn't like us, we, we kill them with grace, metaphorically. We pour such grace that it's hard to be angry at you because you're gracious and you don't act the way I want you to act. I want you to scream at me so I can justify my angst but you're kind and you're gracious to me. Ocean Bark, if we have tasted of God's sweetness, we must reflect that, the sweetness of God's grace. Not only that, are we to speak with grace, but we speak with distinction. Notice he, he continues, he says, uh, See, our speech should be full of grace, but seasoned with salt. In ancient world, salt before refrigeration, salt was used um, to as a preservative for meat, and it was to make the meat savory. And salt can do that because it's inherently different than the meat. And Paul, he's following the teaching of Jesus, he urged the ordinary conversations of the believers to be inherently different than the outside culture around them we don't speak with the words that we use the tone that we use and the content that we use we speak differently than the world around us not only do we act as a preserving agent by giving voice to the life-giving power of the gospel but we are savory in our speech because we bring out the best and the goodness and the beauty and the glory of God's creation we're not called to be dour and surly. Some of you are dour and surly. I love Jesus and you pout. We should have a joy, not a giddiness and a, all that, you know, that annoying, you know, nuss. It's like, calm down, Sparky. Um, but we want to be pleasant and joyful, even if we're not a bubbly kind of person. We're never, but never compromising in sin and the corruption, but we lend our voice to uphold what is good and what is beautiful and what is true. And we're able to interact with our culture, not compromising our ethics and our principles, but we know our culture and we're able to redeem that and use those things for the glory of God. A Christian has no reason to be boring but overflowing with love and passion for God and his creation. Don't be the aliens from Toy Story, okay? Some of you are like, I have no idea what you're talking about. There's these little aliens that all they're consumed with 24 at 7 is the spaceship in heaven. And they just, they're completely oblivious to what's going on. 
but I want you to be people and I want to be a person that our focus is on eternity and because of that we redeem our culture and our time. We see the good and the beauty and the truth in our world and we redeem those and use those to reflect the glory of our creator. We are the salt of the earth and our speech must reflect our identity in Christ. We're called to have speech that's full of grace and with distinct and different from the world. But when we have opportunities, we speak with conviction. Notice the, the final phrase of verse 6. He says, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. When they see that you did not respond and lash out to your boss when they talked to you that way, but you were kind and gracious and forgiving and re respectful, even though your boss didn't deserve it. When you are um, using conversations and, and you're, you're different than the world and, and you're not boring and dour, but you're, you, you have a joy, there's something different about you, and they ask, what is it? And, they're, and they might not even say, what's different about you? But they're, they're watching and they're trying to figure it out. What's different? Why is this person gracious and why are they distinct and salt-filled? Why do they carry themselves with a different attitude and different demeanor that we <clears throat> can be able to share the gospel with conviction even if it then blows up in our face because we know there's a hunger out there. We know that the Spirit is working in people's hearts and we are called to get the message there. Peter, uh, in the book of 1 Peter, he talks about this. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. And notice what he says, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason of your hope that is in you. Why do you believe the gospel? I asked uh, in the new members class, one of the things is I ask people about the gospel. Sometimes people are like, bam, and sometimes it's, and then they go and, and they get that. We, what, why, why do you believe in the gospel? What is the gospel? You need to be ready. You need to be prepared. You're reminding yourself continually of what is this hope that you have, that you have, and, and do it with gentleness and respect. It should be our constant prayer that our coworkers and our neighbor and the people that we come with contact with at a daily basis at the coffee shop and, and at the library or wherever you go uh, habitually, that they will notice that you're different even before the gospel conversation and that um, your graciousness and your speech would be distinct and that then when they find out and you use it and speak with conviction, you call them to repent of their sin and believe and trust in Christ. Now, it won't always be a radical change. All of a sudden, lights from heaven shine and the angels sing and, and there, there's a, a righteous choir. But you know that you have used that opportunity to present them to the gospel and plant that seed. Because so often when we share the gospel, it's something that goes in and, and, and uh, we part ways, but it's something they mull over and think about. And you ask questions that they've never even thought about. And then you come to a realization. And when they have a crisis in their life and their answers that they have do not suffice, they turned and by faith and put their, their trust in the promises of Christ. Ocean Park, we must remember that unfaithfulness in ordinary conversations will slam the door 
for gospel conversations. Eric Raymond, in the, um, in the video we watched in our, new te- in our uh, Sunday school curriculum, says this in the curriculum. If the content of our everyday conversations do not ever mention the gospel or the tone of those interactions do not reflect the gracious, generous, forgiving character of God. In other words, if we use the gospel as a hammer or a baseball bat to their foreheads, we should not be surprised if no one ever asks us about the gospel of God. Ocean Park, how are you living your life? I want you to think about your ordinary interactions this week. Were they flavored with the gospel or in content and tone? Did they overflow with grace and kindness and forgiveness, or were they harsh and obscene and condescending? If you had a discussion, when you had discussions with people from different worldviews, different political parties, different things like that, were you trying to win their soul or were you trying to win the argument? Because we can so easily win the argument but lose their soul. I pray that when you look back and if you're like me, often cringe, Psalm 19.14 will say, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Rosario Butterfield was a tenured professor at Syracuse University. And she was an activist in the LGBT community along with her female partner. She was beginning to write a book on the rise of the religious right from a very critical feminist perspective. And she wrote an op-ed piece in her local newspaper. And she describes that after that piece came out, she got so much mail. She got fan mail and she got hate mail. She got fan mail from the LGBT community and she got hate mail from the Christian community which grieves. But she got, and what she did, so much so, and she says, I'm a neat freak, and so much so she had a um, paper box on one side and a paper box on the other side, and as that she came in, she put hate mail, fan mail, hate mail, fan mail. But she had one letter, one letter that sat in the middle of her desk, and it drove her nuts because she wanted to put it in one of the boxes, but she couldn't figure out which box to put it in. And for weeks, she struggled she said this, it says the secret in her uh, biography, which is in the library, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. In this batch of mail, I received a letter from Pastor Ken Smith, then pastor of Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. It was a kind, an inquiring letter. It encouraged me to explore the kind of questions I admire. How did you arrive at your interpretation? How do you know you're right? Do you believe in God? He didn't argue with my article. He asked me to explore and defend the presuppositions that undergirded it. I really didn't know how to respond to Ken's letter, but I found myself reading and rereading it. I didn't know which box to fill the letter in, and so it sat on my desk and haunted me. What he did, he was a pastor, he wrote the letter, and he invited her, and he said, "Um, I'd love to sit down and talk to you. Why don't you come over our home? My wife will make dinner, and we'll talk about it. And then if you're not uncomfortable or if you're not comfortable, we'll go to a restaurant. And then she said, no, I'll come. I'll do that. And she said she got there and she said, I always wanted to see what a Christian's house looked like. Um, She says, you know, there's always, I've never been invited there. Our conversation was lively and fun. If Floyd, the pastor's wife, was submissive wife, she was gifted, smart, perspective, well-read, and a great cook. If Ken was the Bible-thumping pastor, he was also a good listener, 
a balanced interpreter, a lover of good poetry, a reader of culture and politics, and a husband who clearly adored, relied upon, and valued highly his wife's counsel. These people simply didn't fit the stereotype, and I simply didn't know what to do with this. Like his letter, Ken wouldn't be filed away easily, so I could, I could just go on with my life. Ken and Floyd did something at the meal that has, has a long Christian history, but has functionality lost in too many Christian homes. Ken and Floyd invited the stranger in, not to scapegoat me, but to listen and to learn and to dialogue. Ken and Floyd had a vulnerable and transparent faith. We didn't debate worldview. We talked about our personal truth and about what made us tick. Ken and Floyd didn't identify with me. They listened to me and identified with Christ. They were willing to walk the long journey to me in Christian compassion. During our meal, they didn't share the gospel with me. After our meal, they didn't invite me to church because of the glaring omissions to the Christian script I had come to know. When the evening ended, Pastor Pastor Ken said he wanted to stay in touch, and I knew that it was truly safe to accept his open hand. Conversations continued and continued and continued, and she found herself trying to not believe in Jesus and she says it appalled me that I was becoming one of them those Christians and she um, uh, tried her darndest to be able to put the brakes on but she says in April 1999 I felt the call of Jesus Christ upon my life it was both subtle and blatant like the peace inside the eyes of a hurricane I could in no way resist and in no way understood what would become of my life Rosario Butterfield, because of Ken Smith and his wife Floyd's faithful witness of living out the gospel, speaking the gospel with grace and with distinction and with conviction. They had many conversations about the gospel. He actually even spoke to their, her, one of her, her classes. Because she, he and Floyd conducted themselves with the gospel and spoke with compassion and conviction, the Spirit saved Rosario Butterfield as his own. And I pray that just like Ken Smith's letter, that our tone and our speech and our life would be gracious and compassionate towards the outsiders that we come in contact with. When we belong to Jesus, everything changes. Our life, our conduct, our work, our school, our hobbies, everything is redeemed for Christ. Just like it says in a few verses earlier in 317, whatever you do, living your life and in your speaking, in word or deed, do everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to the God the Father through him. Ocean Park, may we remember today that those who love the gospel reflect the gospel.